Hey there, Michael Kentris here, and welcome to the Neurotransmitters. A quick message before you get to the show. We have some exciting news. Starting in June of 2024, the Neurotransmitters is going to start doing some live case-based discussions. So if you or someone you know is interested in either presenting a case or being part of the discussion group, send us an email at contact at the neurotransmitters.com. Also in the show notes, with the subject line, case-based discussion. Looking forward to hearing from you soon. Hello and welcome back to the Neurotransmitters. We're happy you could join us today. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Aniket Natikar. I know I mispronounced that. Would you care to correct me? Sure. It's pronounced Aniket Natikar. Thank you so much. And I apologize. Uh, Another fellow neurologist joining us today and headache specialist to boot. Thank you again. And I'm very happy to have you. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, it's a pleasure. And I always enjoy trying to give back in terms of education and providing knowledge to the general public and or neurologists or anyone else who's just interested. Awesome. Awesome. So I was really gr- grateful that you reached out to me on X slash Twitter, um, which is how I meet a lot of folks these days. I think it's a great way to keep in touch in the neurology community and the medical community at large. And one of the reasons I was so happy was that, you know, I've, I've seen some of your other podcasts in the past where you've done some interviews and you do a great job educating about headache. And obviously for, for those who are in medicine and for those who aren't, headache is pretty universal. It's one of the most common, if not the most common neurologic disorder that's kind of out in the general population. Yeah. Uh, you know, people tend to not pay as much attention to it or let me try to reword that as they don't give it the same kind of importance that they may other diseases. You know, for a lot of people, they tend to pay more attention to epilepsy, stroke, ALS, Parkinson's disease, things with physical manifestations. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not a sexy diagnosis, right? Exactly. You know, a lot of times there's a stigma associated with it. Uh, Companies, big organizations, even insurance companies, will try their best not to cover it, not to give people time off work or not to try to provide any form of accommodations because there's no physical manifestations of the disease. And in some cases, people also think they're faking it. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, right? It's, it's like the most invisible of our invisible disorders. Exactly. And people don't understand in some cases that migraine is a disease, just like several other headache disorders. You know, people don't necessarily give it the same weight as they would high blood pressure or high cholesterol. Those are equally important disease processes that we obviously need to treat and do our best to prevent. But when someone has migraine, we should also treat that the same as we would if they had high blood pressure or high cholesterol. Absolutely. And I think uh, starting out, would you care to differentiate a little bit for, for those who may be less familiar when we say headache versus when we say migraine and kind of how would someone differentiate between the two if they were evaluating someone? Oh, great question. So in the headache world, we don't really separate out something as like a regular headache versus migraine because in reality, there's no such thing as a regular headache. I've had a headache twice in my life. You know, once when I was 11 with the flu the second time after I hit my head on a car door. Outside of that, I've never had a headache, don't know what it's like. I've never in, endured it personally. So that's why I try to avoid saying regular headache with our patients and in general. Migraine tends to be the second most common type of headache disorder. Tension type headache is actually the most common. Migraine is just the most well-known. It's the one that is experienced by a lot of individuals and it tends to drive a lot of the media attention. So when we think of headache, you know, there's several headache disorders. So I like to think of headache as an umbrella term. And within that, you have multiple disorders such as migraine, tension type headache, any of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias or new daily persistent headache, etc. Yeah, and in my experience and from what I've read in the past, a lot of times, you know, tension headache, kind of your mild ache, so to speak, uh, but it doesn't usually get bad enough for most people to seek medical attention. Uh, I, I'm a little jealous of your lack of headaches throughout your life. I, I do get, uh, I get some muscular and tension type headaches, uh, like when I'm on call and I'm sleep deprived or 
uh, over-caffeinated, you know, all of the, the typical types of triggers. And you know, I'll take some some ibuprofen or acetaminophen or something like that, and I'm usually fine. And that happens maybe once every month or you know six weeks or so. But I've never seen a doctor about it, because <laughs> <laughs> obviously I'm a terrible patient. But um, but what are our main things when we are looking at a migraine? Like in terms of like uh, asking questions, you know, evaluating someone. What do we need to look for? What do we need to ask about uh, to kind of get better assessments for these patients? Oh, yeah. Uh, no problem at all. So when you think of migraine, you know, first things first, there's something called the International Classification for Headache Disorders, ICHD, and they're on version three right now. So anyone who's interested in trying to diagnose someone with a headache, you can look up ICHD3.org. And within that, are the classifications for and the classification criteria for all of the major headache disorders. So migraine, you know, tension type headache, cluster headache, sunk suda, cervicogenic headache, tension type headache, as we said. But when it comes to migraine, someone needs to have at least five attacks in their life, of which the headache has lasted anywhere between four to 72 hours. Then in addition to that, there's a third type which is where they need to have at least two of, I believe, four criteria. One, it has to be unilateral. Two, it tends to be pulsating. So I describe it to my patients as they can hear their heartbeat in their head, or does it feel like the heart is beating inside their head? It tends to be moderate or severe pain. And then they typically notice that it's worse with physical activity. And we're not talking, you know, triathlon level exercise. This is routine physical activity, things that they would normally do in their daily life. Then during the attack, they need to have either nausea and or vomiting or photophobia and phonophobia. So what those two are, meaning sensitivity to light and sensitivity to sound. You need both of those. And then you can also have nausea and or vomiting. And with all of these, you can diagnose someone with migraine. It is important to know that if someone's headache is only three hours, or if it's more than 72 hours, does that mean that they don't have migraine? No, it could still mean that they have migraine. It's just that in order to have an official diagnosis, you need diagnostic criteria that can be objective. But if someone's at 3.78 hours, I would still treat them as if they had migraine, if they had all of the other characteristics. And how does uh how do different auras kind of wrap into the the diagnostic evaluation there yeah great question so when it comes to auras auras can be visual they can be sensory they can be auditory they can even be smell so you can you might smell a certain uh, type of fragrance or a scent of some sort auras are typically anywhere between 5 minutes to an hour before the onset of the pain the ones that we think about the most are visual auras, but they can really, again, be any of the types. It could even be a combination of the two. Some people have what we call a brainstem aura. So it's not just the visual or the sensory or the smell that they may have, but they may actually develop hemiparesis. They might develop complete numbness on one side. They may develop severe onset of dizziness and true vertigo that is associated with it. They may even have a decreased level of consciousness prior to the pain. So an aura tends to be more of a vascular phenomenon. So what we think is happening initially in the headache phase is that you get hyperemic. So you get a rush of blood followed by shrinkage of the blood vessels. So you get high, you know, less blood going to the brain. And in the certain part of the brain that's getting less blood, that's where the aura symptoms will start. So for example, if you have less blood flow in the occipital lobe, that's what tends to cause the visual auras. If you have it in the olfactory cortex, then, you know, it might be the scent of smell or the lack thereof that can be the aura and so on and so forth. Excellent. And I know obviously there's differences in exam findings when someone is in between attacks versus in the attack itself. Um, but let's say someone's coming in, they're describing the events to you by history. It sounds like migraine. What are the the kind of the essential things that we need to to ask about history wise like in terms of mimics and also things to check on our physical examination to make sure that there aren't any 
secondary causes of headache lurking in the background? No, that's a great question. So, you know, anyone who comes in for the first time in your visit and they're talking about headache, <coughs> you want to screen for other things. And again, I apologize for the coughing. It's just something in the throat. So there's something called Snoop P4, which is a very common mnemonic that us neurologists, particularly headache specialists, try to use. So, you know, the S stands for systemic, which means, you know, you screen for any sort of malignancy, immunosuppression of any kind, HIV, concerns for fever, chills, night sweats, myalgias, meaning muscle pain, weight loss, any sort of jaw claudication. The N tends to be neurologic, meaning you look for focal or global neurologic symptoms. You know, this is not limited to, but can include behavioral changes, double vision, transient visual changes, you know, ringing in the ear that can be pulsatile, motor weakness, sensory loss, ataxia, which is difficulty with balance. The first O is you look at the onset. Is it a sudden onset? Meaning, did it peak in less than one minute? The other on O is for onset based on the age. You know, you see, is this a headache before the age of five or is this a new onset headache after the age of 65? Then you can look at the P's. The first one is you want to see, is this a pattern change? Meaning, have you seen an evolution of the headache in any way? Have any of the characteristics changed with time, including has it become a daily headache versus before it was once a month? You know, you want to see, is it precipitated by the Valsalva maneuver? You know, have you noticed that it's worse with certain positions? For example, sitting up versus lying down or standing. <coughs> For the second P, you look at papilledema, meaning do you notice any swelling of the optic nerves, which might indicate a component of increased CSF pressure in the head? You look to see if someone is pregnant. You know, is this a new onset headache during pregnancy, or is this in any way a change of their headache while they're pregnant? And then you want to see, you know, is this a phenotype of a rare headache? Meaning this would be the last P. So is it one of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias? Is this a hypnic headache? Is this an exercise-induced headache? Is it cough-induced? Is it even a sex-induced headache? And so you screen for all of those. And if, you know, several of them are flagging positive, then you want to rule out the more emergent causes for headache. So, you know, it may require them going to the ER, get emergent imaging, further workup. And once you've ruled all of the more emergent, potentially deadly things out, you then can screen for the other primary headache disorders. No, that was a great rundown. Uh, the, the Snoop 4, and I think there's uh, even a Snoop 10 out there, but I would be a liar if I said I knew all all 10 Ps. But uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's a great way to kind of approach approach these patients. Now, before we started recording, we were, we were chatting a bit and we were talking. Most of these patients with, with headaches, with migraines specifically, present first, obviously, to their primary care physician. And, you know, what, what is the range that a primary care physician, you know, family medicine doctor, an internist, be comfortable uh, in terms of starting treatment, diagnosing you know, flip that and reverse it, uh, diagnosing and treating. And when should they be like, maybe I need to get uh, an extra opinion if this isn't responding as expected? Oh, that's a great question. So I would say PCPs in general, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, you know, they should at least be comfortable with screening. So you do the Snoop P4. You know, now I'm not expecting PCPs of any kind to read the MRI themselves. So, you know, they may be reliant more on the radiology report. Not a problem. But if you've ruled out the more emergent stuff, then using a simple resource like UpToDate or even ICHD3.org, you can quickly screen, okay, the patient has all of these. I can diagnose them with migraine. You know, I'm not afraid to Google things in front of my patient all, all the time. So same, I encourage same. other providers and doctors to do the same. So, you know, after you've Googled, you can even then Google further. What are common medications to treat said condition, particularly a headache type? Within yeah. migraine, you know, there's three main classes that we kind of look at as the initial treatment options. One would be an anti-seizure med. Typically, topiramate is our first go-to. 
You could even look at antidepressants. Any, uh, most of the TCA, so amitriptyline or nortriptyline. You could even look at duloxetine or venlafaxine. And then the third is anti-blood pressure. So that's both beta blockers as well as ACE inhibitors, ARBs. So you can think of propanolol or candesartan as the two main well, amongst the blood pressures. And the other thing I always encourage primary care providers and doctors to do is to look at other comorbid conditions, if any. If, for example, your patient has depression, and we know depression is not a cause for headache, but it contributes to it. It's part of the cycle. Mm-hmm. So if there is depression, maybe consider an amitriptyline or duloxetine or venlafaxine or nortriptyline. You know, if there's concern for weight gain, topiramate has a side effect of weight loss that you can try to take advantage of. If, you know, there's any sort of high blood pressure, then yes, propranolol, candesartan can also be helpful in those situations. So typically I tell PCPs, try one or two of these. And if your patient is still reporting, you know, headache that is not getting better and you've addressed the medications, also talk to them about lifestyle. I think we as medical professionals in general don't do enough of a good job screening our patients for lifestyle. So I've made it a point in my own clinic to ask them, what do you eat for lunch? What do you eat for dinner? What do you eat for breakfast? How much water do you drink? How much caffeine do you drink? You know, are you eating mostly red meat? Do you eat mostly seafood, fruits and vegetables? You know, and then more importantly, do you do any form of exercise? Because more often than not, lifestyle plays a huge part in managing headache. I can't even begin to tell you how many patients' headaches or headache disorders, I should say, I've gotten better, maybe not cured, but better just by modifying lifestyle. And this is even before the start of medications. Yeah. And, you know, anecdotally, let me just grab this. You know, I'm, I'm holding it for the, you know, I know we don't record video, but I'm holding up a half gallon uh, water <laughs> container here. And for the last three weeks, you know, to, to support your point, I've been drinking one of these a day. Um, I think I've lost like seven pounds over the last month. So it, right. It's just the small things, you know, you do a little exercise, change your diet and it, it does make a difference. Um, it's, it's all connected, right? It, it is. And, you know, when we think of other cardiovascular conditions, for example, the heart healthy diet is also known as the Mediterranean diet. Another way to look at it is the pescatarian diet. Because I live in Ohio, I coined a, a jokingly uh, term. I call it the not Ohio diet. <laughs> because people in Ohio tend to eat a lot of beef, a lot of pork, and they love drinking Mountain Dew. So I tell them instead, eat like you live in California or New York, where they tend to eat more of a Mediterranean diet. So, you know, seafood, fruits, and vegetables. And, you know, tell them eliminate the caffeine, stick to water. You know, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've actually counseled patients on the, not just the importance of water, but how to drink water, how to eliminate any potential tastes of water that they claim there is in more than water. How many people I've counseled on using something like a Brita filter, uh, you know, actually had to counsel a patient on using a metal water bottle and I helped him calculate out the savings that he would have if he had a reusable water bottle versus buying packs of water per year. And I did the math in real time for him based on how much he spent every week. And that's what it took in order to get it. Right. So sometimes it just goes right down to the very basics for our patients that we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It is. It's one of those things I've been getting. Maybe it's just me getting older uh, as I close in on 40, but um, starting to think about like, why do I have the habits that I have and how are they detrimental to my longevity and my, my long-term health? Uh, is, I'm not, not quite to the midlife crisis stage, but I, <laughs> I'm trying to head it off at the pass. And uh, it is one of those things, right? Uh, I just saw a clip the other day where it was you know, secondhand, but someone said, like, treat your body like a house that you're going to have to live in for the next 70 years. And I was like, that's, that's really well put, actually. Yeah. And I always try to tell patients, it's never too late to make changes. You know, even if you're 40, 50, 60, even 70-year-olds, I tell them, 
even if you make changes now, your body will thank you later. And uh, a common phrase that I use my patient is, or with my patients, I should say, is we should focus on prevention to prevent treatment later. So Mm -hmm. the older you get, hopefully you don't need blood pressure meds, diabetes meds, cholesterol meds. Maybe you won't need a cane or a walker for as late as possible because you've exercised your whole life and strengthened your bones and focused on mental health as well. You know, these are all the keys that I try to emphasize with my patients. So a bunch of my colleagues joke, I'm the most holistic of the headache specialists because I spend the most time talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, it really does pay off for a lot of these people, you know, I mean, these, these are kind of universal things for, for just general health. Um, especially when we're dealing with like a chronic pain type situation, uh, it just kind of adds an extra incentive for someone to, to try and pursue these, these changes. Yeah. And more often than not, at least in today's day and age, patients aren't always looking for medication, medication, medication. So then I try to emphasize to them, well, guess what? You know, we may start a medication for headache, but if you make these lifestyle changes and your headache gets better, there's a good chance we may be able to come off of the meds too. And maybe some of your other medications, if they're on any, for example, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes could get better as well. You know, I had a patient lose well over a hundred pounds. He's now off of his blood pressure meds, his cholesterol meds, and his diabetes meds got cut in half. And his PCP was saying, what, you know, what caused the change? And he told me, I told him, my neurologist really told me to cut out the beef and pork and the chips, cookies, candy, and switch to seafood, fruits, and vegetables. Yeah. And that really made a difference. It is one of those things, you know, it's like, I I think uh, in a similar story, a few years ago, I had a, a younger guy who was having like, you know. It was more like in your chronic daily headache type situation, but uh, you dig into the story a little bit and you find out he's drinking like two 12 liters of Mountain Dew a day, which <laughs> to your earlier point, it is a very common thing we see in Ohio. Um, and I was just like, do you realize how much caffeine that is? And it's like, how much water do you drink? And he was like, none. And I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> how how have you not had any kidney stones already? But um but yeah, it's like you you go through. It's like you're spending this much money every day on on all this uh, on the soda, and you know you're drinking this many milligrams of caffeine. That's this many cups of coffee. Like, doesn't that sound like a little much? And uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you kind of like you write it out in black and white on a sheet of paper, and you you tell them. You, unfortunately, you kind of you know have that come to come to Jesus moment with them and, and tell them like, hey, you're you're causing yourself a lot of problems here, and I do kind of, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but a lot of times I counsel them, like, we can try medications, but if you're living your life like this, they're probably not going to work. Yeah. I tell patients, you know, regardless of how good a medication may or may not work at that very moment, there's always a chance that it may stop working later if you continue to maintain bad habits now. You know, and I always try to tell them lifestyle changes, regardless of what you think will help you long-term. You know, studies have shown regular exercise when it comes to migraine can help reduce the intensity, duration, and frequency of headache up to 50%. You know, now is that a guarantee everyone will get 50%? No, but something about the headache should get better with regular exercise, with better diet, you know, with increased hydration and elimination of several other dietary and lifestyle things that we shouldn't be doing. Right, and... I mean, to be honest, right? When we look at a lot of the medication trials for migraine, a lot of the responder rates are twenty to fifty percent, also, right? So it's 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 almost like another medication in and of itself. Yeah, and it's nature's best medication, right? So, uh, you know, and plenty of studies have shown the American diet has higher risk or higher rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and particularly several types of cancer. You know, and. The United States is, I believe, per capita, the most obese country in the world. Ohio is uh, the sixth most overweight state in the country. And it's in the middle in the north. Yeah. Yet it's up there. So this is where emphasizing the dietary and lifestyle factors now, particularly with primary care providers and doctors, can make a huge impact before they ever reach a specialist. Absolutely. No, that's well said. So, you know, you've been talking a lot about kind of some holistic options. 
Now, you know, we're both neurologists. So obviously, you know, we both did neurology residency, but then you decided to go and pursue a headache fellowship. So when people are looking at, you know, a general neurologist versus a headache specialist, what what are the extra things that a headache specialist can can bring to the table? What kind of additional options do they have in addition to obviously their experience? No, yeah, uh, great question. So when it comes to, you know, a primary care provider and doctor sending to a general neurologist, you know, general neurologists typically are familiar with any of the medications from those three classes that we had mentioned earlier. And potentially now with the new CGRP inhibitors that are coming out, they may or may not be aware of those as well, may or may not have some comfort with them as well. Headache specialists in general not only are we comfortable with the three primary headache classes or the three primary classes of medications, we're very comfortable with the CGRP inhibitors. You know, we're comfortable with procedures like nerve blocks, trigger point injections within the head, neck, and shoulders, you know, Botox for migraine, which of course a lot of general neurologists also do. But then depending on where you do your headache medicine fellowship, you may have additional expertise where you admit a patient for a few days to receive a regimen of medications, whether it be a short stay unit or, you know, some sort of infusion program. And if you happen to be at one of those very few tertiary care centers, you may even admit a patient for ketamine or lidocaine or both as infusions for a five-day protocol to try to break the headache and improve their headache. Excellent. Yeah. Because again, that's another thing we were talking about. I know those things are done but uh, not something I have done. And, you know, probably me being a little squishy, uh, <laughs> not something I would feel comfortable doing without uh, studying up a little bit more about it. And as we also said, probably not something my, my nursing managers would be happy with me for trying to do either. So yes, uh, it definitely takes a lot of infrastructure to kind of build those things. Um, but the other thing was um, headache specialties or headache fellowships in general, you know, neurology is not the only road uh, to that, right? We can see sometimes internal medicine physicians or family medicine physicians. Um, I don't know if there are other specialties beyond those three that can sometimes enter in anesthesia, perhaps. Yeah. Um, what, in your again, in your sole opinion, uh, is the difference in sort of different perspectives? You know, I know there's obviously a convergence to a degree, but there's probably some difference approach differences in approaches. Yes. Uh, so you can see all sorts of uh, primary specialties that then do fellowship and headache. <laughs> you alluded to several of them, you know, primary care of pediatrics, internal medicine, family. You can get anesthesia. Uh, where I trained for fellowship at Jefferson, there was even a dentist who did the headache medicine fellowship. And because he obviously works within the mouth area, he can do Botox and several of the muscles for patients who may have TMJ. So you have them, you have ophthalmologists, because a lot of times neuro-ophthalmologists in particular tend to overlap with migraine. So you can have some ophthalmologists do the fellowship. You have interventional pain specialists from whatever background come. I've seen ENTs do headache because, you know, a lot of times patients will come in with ear pain or jaw pain as a primary thing for ENT or sinus pressure, thinking it's a sinus headache. But in reality, there's no such thing as a sinus headache, unless it's due to a primary infection or obstruction. And, you know, it ends up being migraine or other headache disorders. So I've seen ENT docs also do the headache fellowship. Interesting. And again, any significant, like do, do each of these kind of subspecialties tend to focus a little bit on certain types of headache in terms of their future practice? Or uh, how, did, how did that... Uh, how does that shake out in the wash at the end of the day? And that's a great question. So if you did neurology, I think you tend to focus on all of the headache disorders. If you're primary care, you may tend to focus more on things related to depression or in how it contributes to headache, you know, weight gain, weight loss, as well as the other medical conditions like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that. And if you're ENT, you may tend to focus more on the sinus slash facial region if you happen to be dentistry of any kind, then, you know, you tend to focus more on the jaw and how it contributes to headache. But 
each of the specialists and subspecialists at that point when you do headache fellowship, the important thing is they get the knowledge of all of the different headache disorders. So even though they want to focus on one type, because the fellowship tends to be standardized across the country, regardless of your primary specialty that you came in with, you're taught about all of the headache disorders. So you should be able to, in theory, treat all of them equally. No, that makes complete sense. Yeah, I there are a couple I forgot about optho and uh, EMT as as and let alone dentistry as potential players in that space. But that all makes sense, right? Uh, there's a lot of people working in the head and neck, uh, not just uh, not just us, huh? Yes, exactly. Um, and that kind of brings me back around a little bit. You know, I know we we talked a little bit at the beginning about kind of like invisible disorders and about migraine. And this is something I've seen campaigns online for in the past, but people talking about how migraine isn't just headache, um, where people talk about kind of the the pre-migraine and the post-migraine kind of uh, symptoms as well. How does that factor into to your care of a patient? Yeah, no, that, <clears throat> great question. So migraine comes as like three main phases. So, you know, you have your prodrome, which are the symptoms and or feelings that people have before the onset of the actual headache. You have the ictal period, which is the pain itself. And then you have the postural, right? And within the ictal period, you can have the aura or no aura. So prodrome can be anywhere even up to a week or even two weeks prior to the onset of the headache. You could have yawning, fatigue, cognitive fog, which is a, you know a term that we tend to use for people who feel like their clarity or has been affected. You know, myalgias, visual disturbances, all sorts of stuff. And then you have the ictal period, which is the actual headache. And then you have the postdrome, which is the same thing as the pre or the, yeah, the prodrome. So the postdrome can still have yawning, fatigue, cognitive issues, nausea and vomiting can last several days after the headache has resolved. And that tends to be a common phenomenon as well. So even if you think that the headache is only one or two days, the whole aspect of the headache episode can be up to seven days, some people 14 days. So Mm -hmm. those are also things to think about. You know, some of my patients will tell me they'll notice their headache is going to be coming on because the pressure is changing outside. So they can tell when it's going to rain because pressure changes affects their headache as well. Fascinating. Now. I know that there are there's some grading scales out there. Um, Midas is the one that I'm familiar with, but I know there's others as well where they kind of talk about you know uh, quantifying disability um, because obviously in neurology in particular, why right, we have a lot of disorders that can inhibit people's ability to work, earn a living, and so sometimes trying to get work accommodations or other things of that nature can be challenging. You know, especially when we start getting insurance into the mix in the United States. We have to a lot of times justify why we're recommending what we're recommending. Um, in what way do kind of these these prodromal, postdromal types of symptoms help to obtain maybe some type of leeway, work accommodations, things of that nature? Uh, at least in your experience. Yeah. So in my own experience, if patients are able to reliably track their prodrome and their postdrome. Uh, you know, oh, and I forgot to add for postdrome, some people feel euphoric afterwards. Mm. They can even have depression afterwards. So it's not like they're actively having a depressive episode if they have an underlying depression or don't, but it can be part of the headache phase as well. But when it comes to people who can reliably track their postdrome and their prodrome, what I can write is intermittent family medical leave act, so FMLA. You you can ask for intermittent leave, which is, okay, my patient will have a headache guaranteed in two days once they experience these symptoms. Please accommodate them with either reduced work hours or allow them to have intermittent time off without punishment of any kind. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And let's say, right, we have a patient, you know, they've modified their lifestyle to the best of their ability. made some made some improvement in their their headache frequency and or severity they're still not there you know we've got them on maybe one we've tried one or two daily prophylactic medications 
But what about rescue therapies? Kind of how do we approach that uh, that soup, if you will? No, oh, that's a great question. So when we think about rescue medications or abortive therapies, that's another way to look at it. First and foremost, you always want to counsel your patients. Any of the abortive medications outside of the CGRP inhibitors will increase your risk of medication overuse headache, also known as rebound headache or medication adaptive headache, if you take it more than two days a week combined together. So that on on its own, I also screen my patients for. So if they tell me they have 20 headache days a month, okay, do you take an ibuprofen, Tylenol, et cetera, or any of the -the over-the-counters every single time? Yes. Okay. You may have medication overuse headache. So that's something to screen for as well. You know, now you have to be careful with who you speak to. If you speak to uh, someone by the name of Dr. Bill Young, he will tell you that it's called medication adaptive headache. And the reason for that is because (laughs) your brain has adapted to the use of analgesic medications. I personally think that medication overuse headache, there is a negative stigma associated with it, but it is also accurate. So depending on how you phrase it, you know, Mm -hmm. you can hopefully avoid that stigma. But that's why I present my patients with all three. I I feel like that's the most common headache that you've never heard of is is that kind of medication overuse, right? I mean, that is part of the problem, right? These things are just sitting on the shelf. Ibuprofen, Tylenol, it's safe, right? Like we we can take it as often as we need it. Um, maybe not so much, uh, in real life though. Yes. So, you know, I always have to counsel my patients if they are taking more than two days a week combined together, cut it. You know, we should treat the medication overuse headache aspect as well. You should always warn your patients. Initially, they are going to feel worse because, you know, their brain is used to a certain amount of medications that it's not getting now. Because when you have medication overuse headache or medication adaptive headache, What happens is your brain will change the structure at the molecular level. So you will still try to take something, but the pain is still firing and it's not going to be as effective. And that also prevents preventive and other abortive medications from being as effective. It's kind of like what we alluded to earlier when it came to lifestyle with the caffeine and how that can affect the medication efficacy. So, you know, you have to warn your patients for the first few weeks, you're going to feel horrible. Because you aren't taking these things as much as you used to. However, after a few weeks, your brain realizes you're not taking those things and switches back to the way it used to be. And I tell them something about the headache gets better. Whether that be how long it lasts, how many days a week, you know, the intensity of it, something should get better. And I even tell them that it's not going to be a drastic drop necessarily. Instead of being 10 out of 10 pain, it may only be 9 out of 10 pain. Instead of lasting eight hours, it may only last 7.5 hours. Instead of being 20 days a month, it may only go to 19 days a month. But either way, that's an improvement, and it gives us a better chance for other things working. So if you've addressed the medication overuse headache aspect and your patients don't have it, then, yeah, you can talk about the -the over-the-counter analgesics. You know, as long as they're limiting the use and these are effective, there's no harm in it. Furacet is a very common one that's prescribed by primary. I was going to ask you. You beat me to the punch. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And that's one that we tend not to recommend because it's aspirin, acetaminophen, which is also known as Tylenol, and it has something in it called butalbital, which is a barbiturate. It's a stronger class than benzodiazepines. And, you know, there's a potential for tolerance with it potentially addiction too. So you want to try to avoid that. I do have some patients on Fearset, but that's only because they only need it once every three months. So if that's the case, I'm fine with it, but it's in rare circumstances. Yeah. I I think I was a first year attending uh, a while ago and I had this, uh, this, she was in her seventies, I think. And she'd been on Fioraset like one to two tabs a day for God knows how long decades. And I was talking with her, like, she's like, her headaches are getting worse. I'm like, well, I think we probably need to start weaning you off this Fiora set. And, you know, I felt she was this, this sweet little old lady. And if you remember that scene from Lord of the Rings where, you know, Bilbo like sees the ring all of a sudden and like kind of transforms into this little troll, it was like that. 
you know, it's like she just transformed in front of my eyes into this like very angry little old lady uh, when I tried to take <laughs> it yours set away. And uh, it is right. It is addictive. Uh, and that uh, that makes it a really big stumbling block for some people. Absolutely. And coming off of it can be hard. You know, yeah. if you're doing it outpatient, I tell my patients, eliminate one tablet every week. Mm-hmm. If they're on multiple tablets, if it's just one tablet every day, then I make them do every other day and then for one week and then stop it. You know, and the goal is to try to avoid withdrawal symptoms. Sometimes the yes. safest way to do it is to just bring them into the inpatient side, find the equivalent of phenobarbital, give them the phenobarbital in tapering doses over a few days to get them through the withdrawal period safely, and then mm-hmm. discharge them without the fear set. But, you know, in certain cases, you can do it outpatient. So I tend to avoid yeah. fear set altogether. Then you want to think yes. about the other abortive medications. So, you know, you can think mm-hmm. of triptans. Sumatriptan, Almatriptan, Elatriptan, Rizatriptan, you know, Zolmatriptan, Naratriptan, Frovatriptan. <laughs> There's so many, and they come in different formulations, right? Some are injectable. Some can be through nasal spray. Some can be dissolvable. Some are solid tablets. So some can come in IV formulation as well. So you want to think about what probably works best for your patient. Frovatriptan is the one that we use primarily for someone with menstrual migraine, for example, because its half-life is very long. I think it's at about 26 hours. The next one after that is naratriptan. However, most often than not, insurance companies will not approve either of these medications because (laughs) they want you to go through the other triptans first. Right. So you can try those, but you always have to counsel your patients again about medication overuse headache and the potential for it. You could even try some of the anti-nausea meds. So things like prochlorperazine, chlorpromazine, or promethazine. Metoclopramide can also be there, but it's not as effective as the other three. So even though these are anti-nausea meds, you can use them as a headache abortive, even if they don't have nausea. I tend to find these also very effective in people who have concomitant nausea with their headache. Mm -hmm. Because you're treating both things at once. I avoid on Dancitron, which is known as Zofran, because it's not known to be effective for headaches specifically. Right. So I try to use one of these three. But you always want to be careful about, you know, dystonic reactions of any kind. And if they do, tell them to take a Benadryl to avoid it or to resolve it. And then you also want to think about, uh, you know, the risk of Parkinson's disease if they use metoclopramide regularly for several years. There's always something in the back of your head. So you always have to tell your patients, limit the use no more than two days a week. You have all of these other extra parameter side effects and potential long-term risks. But then even outside of that, chlorpromazine, for example, can cause hypotension. So if someone has high blood pressure, that's another added advantage. But if they already have low blood pressure, maybe they're not a candidate for it. Then after the basic triptans and the anti-nausea meds, you want to think about the CGRP inhibitors. The two that come to mind are the G-Pants. So you have Romegipant, which is known as Neurotech, and then Ubrojipant, which is known as Ubrelvi. These are the two, not only do they at this point not cause medication overuse headache, they're pretty well tolerated, they're very safe, and there's very few contraindications, if any. So those would be, I would say, the abortive classes that you really focus on. Lismitidan, which is known as Rabau, is another abortive that you could look into. But that one comes with the caveat of people are not allowed to drive for eight hours afterwards. So it can be very restricting as an abortive agent compared to the other ones. Mm-hmm. You can also look at DHE. I forgot to mention that one, which is an ergot. Mm-hmm. That one yeah. comes as a nasal spray. The brand, One of the brands is Trudessa. It also comes as an intramuscular injection that you could do, and it, it's also there in IV form. Gotcha. No, that's that's a great rundown of some of the options out there. Which you know, the they they can be you know with the triptans as a perfect illustration, where you get like you know a dozen nearly medications all in the same class. They all have these little tweaks this way and that. Half lives are different. Indications are slightly different. Um, but you know, there's probably a handful that are relatively equivalent in terms of like your 
plain Jane migraine, if you will. Um, now, something you mentioned that I wanted to explore a little further, um, since I could hear the the eye rolling uh, with the Reglan. So something I see, right? I work, I do a lot of neurohospitalist type work, and a lot of times folks coming in into the emergency department for headache for migraine specifically will get, as you said, a combination of usually like uh, Ketorolac, um, Compazine, or sorry, not Compazine, Reglan, and Benadryl, and that'll be it. Essentially, you know, they kind of get that little one-time blast of medications. If they get better, they go home. If they don't, they usually wind up on my doorstep. So what are your thoughts in terms of like the, let's say we've got someone coming in with, you know, they took maybe a dose of sumatriptan at home, inappropriately dosed dose. Um, I think that's something to maybe comment on as well is what is an appropriate triptan dose. Um, in my experience, they tend to be underdosed for most people. And, um, but let's say this person got an appropriate dose. They came into the ED, they got some Reglan, got the Benadryl, got the Toradol, maybe got a half liter of normal saline fluids. They're still having a headache. If you were to implement a protocol for an ED, which I know you mentioned that you're working on that, yes. <laughs> um, what would you change? What is, what is like your best evidence-based practice for, for this acute treatment of migraine? No, that's a great question. You know, headache is the fourth leading cause of ER presentations in the country. Studies have shown giving NSAIDs over opiates in the ER actually leads to a faster rate of discharge out of the ER. So something like Ketorolac is effective. You know, when it comes to an ER regimen or even an acute short stay unit or observational stay unit regimen, it doesn't hurt to use those three medications that you mentioned. You know, they can be effective. I try to avoid the opiates unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance that would or potentially may warrant it. For example, some sort of bacterial meningitis, which is like severely painful. Okay, maybe a couple doses of opiates wouldn't hurt. Or if they're going through opiate withdrawal, then yes, you obviously want to try to prevent the withdrawal that may be causing the headache. Or if they just had major surgery or major injury to the head. Yes, opiates may be indicated in that sense. So you always want to weigh the risks and the benefits of medications. But in addition to what you mentioned, you know, you can cycle them every eight hours. So that's something that people do. I tend to only do the Ketorolac for six doses because anything more than that increases your risk of gastritis, you know, potentially acute renal injury. So you want to try to limit that. You can also look at magnesium. So magnesium sulfate, 2,000 milligrams every 12 hours. IV, that can be effective in addition to the other ones that you mentioned. You can even look at DHE if they've already had sumatriptan. You know, DHE has an IV met in formulation. You can do 0.5 or 1 milligrams. Now, mind you, you shouldn't use it within 24 hours uh, of them having sumatriptan at home if they used a lot of sumatriptan. However, on the inpatient side, we used to do it every eight hours. So you could actually space it eight hours from the sumatriptan dose if needed. You know, sumatriptan, if you were going to use it, it comes as 25, 50, or 100 milligram doses. What we typically tell our patients to do is you take one at the onset of a headache, and then you can take another two hours later, no more than two tablets in a day, no more than two days a week. So whether you're at the 25, 50, or 100 milligram dose, no more than two tablets in a day. I've seen some scripts being written as max 200 milligrams in 24 hours. But then to some patients, that means I can take four tablets and I have to tell them, no, you can't. It's two uh, tablets. Yeah. Um, have you ever prescribed a 25 milligram tablet for anybody? Oh, yeah. Most of my patients yeah. I prescribe, I start at 25. First of all, okay. because all right. if at the lowest dose, you can get rid of their headache, Yeah. then that's even better because you're minimizing the risk of side effects. Good point. Good point. Right. Nausea can be I've, a big one. Yeah. GERD. Mm -hmm. Some people will get the palpitations or the chest pain at higher doses. So I try to avoid mm -hmm. as much of that as I can. No, that's a good point. Anecdotally, I've just had a lot of failures. I don't, I don't usually get responses below 50, but maybe I'm not doing a good enough job counseling people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you never know. And you know, it might just be your specific patient population tends to respond at 50 or higher. In my case, 
you know, up to this point, yeah. I've gotten away with 25 or even 50 <laughs> instead oh, of being in Ohio. No, it's always good. I got to go back and, you know, review my own practice. Yeah. But, um, but there's even more meds you can do on the inpatient side. I forgot to say. Yeah, yeah. Lay it on me. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, something else that we did. We would try one of the anti-nausea meds first. And if after two or three days they're ineffective, despite maximizing doses every eight hours, you can then look into something like haloperidol. Now, I know that seems like a very powerful antipsychotic. People get nervous with it. You obviously want to, you know, preface it with, there should be no sort of contraindications. For example, someone shouldn't have Parkinson's disease if you're going to use haloperidol. You know, they shouldn't have had like permanent tardive dyskinesia, which could then obviously worsen with haloperidol. They shouldn't have any underlying psychiatric conditions that may be contraindicated with haloperidol. Right? You want to warrant it with that. If none of those are an issue, then yeah, you can do one milligram, three milligrams, five milligrams, even up to 10, I believe, Every eight hours, not only is haloperidol good at treating headache, but it's also good at treating the nausea part too. So it's slightly more powerful than what I do is if after the six doses of the Ketorolac, it's still been ineffective. You could even try something like methylprednisolone, 125 milligrams every 12 hours. And I typically would do it at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. with food. And you can do that up to six doses, but remember, it has to be minimum eight hours from when the NSAID was given, which was Ketorolac in this case, because you want to avoid the gastric side effects or bleeding risk from that aspect. Yeah, that makes sense. No, that's that's really good. Um, it does, uh, does IV valproic acid have any role in your practice? Yeah. Yeah. So IV valproic acid is also a good option. You know, some people ask me, what about levetiracetam, known as Kepra? Uh, some headache docs do it, some don't. There's really no hmm. uh, conclusive evidence that levetiracetam is effective in headache, but as a last ditch effort, it doesn't hurt. If despite hmm. everything else, it has been unsuccessful, you could try levetiracetam as well. Interesting. And something I've seen, or at least heard about, I shouldn't say seen, uh, some people will, even for like a more a uh, non-localized, or I should say non-occipital predominant migraine, um, they'll try like occipital nerve blocks or other kind of like, kind of just numb, like do your, you know, auricular temporal, superorbitals, all these nerve blocks and just try and numb the head uh, essentially. Does that, is that just like a shotgun maneuver? Or is there any data to back that up? Oh, so occipital nerve blocks, trigger point injections, you know, like you mentioned, any of the auriculotemporal nerve blocks, supraorbital, supratrochlear, you know, uh, and even lesser occipital and even third mm-hmm. nerve blocks, all of these have tremendous evidence behind them for headache. It's not just, uh, you know, a last ditch effort kind of deal. Mm-hmm. In reality, in some cases, these might be the primary things you do in conjunction with all of the medications. So there have been times where I've admitted somebody or someone is admitted, we're trying all of these medications and I say, screw it. Let's do a nerve blocks and trigger point injections because mm-hmm. it may help them with numbing the headache and make the other medications more effective. But in addition to that, if there's a significant musculoskeletal component to their pain, you know, obviously I can't Botox them on the inpatient side. So this might be an option where yeah. we're just numbing up the nerves and loosening up the muscles and hoping that that contributes to some long-lasting pain relief. No, those are good points. And I, I do think, like, it's, you know, a lot of those nerve blocks aren't particularly challenging procedures. I think it's something um, our, our ER colleagues and a lot of our, you know, hospitalist colleagues as well would probably benefit from knowing how to do um, just because they can, right? The side effects are very minimal, and if you do them properly, they're very safe. Yes, and lidocaine nerve blocks without epinephrine are even safe in pregnancy. So if you have a pregnant patient who comes to the ER with headache, that might be another thing that you can do on the inpatient side or in the ER that could help alleviate some of the headache symptoms and is just another tool in the arsenal before having to call neurology. Excellent. So, So we kind of talked a little bit about kind of outpatient management, inpatient management, when to kind of move people along the diagnostic algorithm. Uh, any final thoughts you have about about headache 
in in the medical system uh big chinks in the the armor as far as management of of migraine or headache disorders at large uh yeah uh so for one there's less than a thousand board certified headache specialists in the country so you're talking about one headache doctor or headache certified doctor for about 80,000 patients who suffer from a headache disorder, mostly migraine that we think of. So, you know, there's a severe need for people with headache disorders to be treated by someone who has experience and expertise in headache medicine. In addition to that, I try to educate people on a few things. For one, I avoid saying the word migraines. I say the word migraine because migraine is a disease. So if you use the medical term for blood pressure, for example, hypertension, if someone's blood pressure is high, you don't say they have hypertensions. Or if someone has depression and they actively have a depressive episode, you don't go, they have depressions. So similarly, I try to teach people, (laughs) we should avoid saying migraines and instead say migraine. I do the same thing for the word headache. I say, stop saying headaches, say headache and choose a different word to pluralize, like days, attacks or episodes. And when you do that, it helps you better advocate for yourself and for your own patients. All right. So you probably have an opinion on this word then. Uh, what's your What's your opinion on the term migraineur? Oh, uh, so even that term, I don't know why people <laughs> use it. You know, uh, what's funny about it is it's very French. I tried yes, Googling yes. it before. No one really knows the true origin of it unless it is truly French. But migraineur is what I think of. <laughs> And what I think of what Americans think of classically of the French, if you don't like the French as Americans, then why would you use migraineur, right? There's also a negative stigma associated with the term migraineur. People think pain-seeking patient, et cetera. Mm. So I avoid that. Other things that I avoid, I hate the term headache cocktail. Because when you look up the true definition of the word cocktail, it's an alcoholic beverage that's composed of spirits mixed with other liquids. So instead I use the term regimen of medications. The other thing is every provider slash doctor has their own regimen. So it's never standardized. So if one ER doc calls me and says, Hey, I gave them a headache cocktail. Well, what meds did you give? Oh, I gave them a cocktail. No, no, just tell me the meds that you gave. And then they'll tell me two or three, but then their next colleague will have tried something else. So that's why, you know, I emphasize that. I also try to avoid using opiates on the inpatient side, kind of like what I had mentioned before, unless I feel like they're indicated in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I always tell people is I avoid the term failed because we constantly say our patients failed these medications, but if they took them as recommended and as prescribed and the medications didn't work, how did they fail the medications? In reality, the medications failed them. That's a good twist to it. I like that. Right. So instead I say the medications were unsuccessful. So that's why I avoid saying, oh, uh, the patients failed these medications. Because when I think of failed, I think of math test or chemistry test. Those you absolutely can fail. But if you took the meds (laughs) as prescribed or as recommended and they didn't work, then how did you fail them? The meds failed you. True. True. Yeah. It is one of those things. Uh, it does create like a subconscious bias uh, to an extent. Now, to your point earlier, there are so few headache specialists in the country. And uh, if I recall correctly, there are very often unfilled headache fellowship slots available for those who would be interested. So if we were to to speak to the trainees of, of today and trying to convince them to pursue a career in headache medicine, what would be your, your elevator pitch for why is it a good career? Oh, thank you for asking that question. You're the first one. So what I would say is headache medicine in general is very rewarding because headache disorders, particularly migraine, is the second leading cause of disability in the world after low back pain. And migraine affects pretty much everybody in every age group. It's also one of the few neurologic disorders where if there's improvement in the condition, people can return to their baseline level of function. You know, unlike a stroke, Parkinson's disease, or Alzheimer's disease, 
where with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or any of the dementias, there tends to be a progression in the negative direction. With a lot of the headache disorders, if you can get them better, they tend to go backwards, back to where they used to be. So you can have a real impact on people's quality of life. And now that's not to say don't go into cognitive neurology or movement disorders. All of those are equally (laughs) rewarding. But with headache, it's nice to see where you can really impact someone's life in a positive manner. And they return to baseline. And sometimes it's nice to see that, oh, it's not a guarantee in five years they may pass away. But, you know, there's several years maybe ahead of them. In addition to that, you get all age groups, you know, anywhere from children all the way up to the most senior of citizens. So headache affects everybody. It's not like some of the more nuanced neurologic disorders. In addition to that, because it is the second leading cause of disability in the world, there are plenty of career options. It's not like if you went to a big city, you would be saturated with the one subspecialty. So there's not as many opportunities for you. There is, and even in smaller cities or towns, there absolutely is even more opportunity for you where you can have Mm -hmm. a huge impact with not as much of a practice. Not to mention about 30% of general neurology is headache. So if almost one third of your general neurology practice, which by the way, there's an even bigger need for general neurology than there is for headache. But if you were to do general neurology, one third of your practice is headache. Why not become proficient in that so that you don't have to keep Mm -hmm. referring to other subspecialists? Excellent points. And I've I've definitely been uh, promoting it as an option for some of my internal medicine and family medicine residents who rotate through me, who, um, you know, one of the things I've talked about on the podcast before is people who haven't had exposure to neurology as a discipline properly in clinical rotations. And then they come and do neurology and it's like, oh, this is interesting, but not interesting enough. I want to go back and do four years of residency. But I'm like, well, you know, as a primary care doctor, headache, super useful skill set. And, you know, you you get that little uh, extra spice of neurology mixed in there. And it can be a very rewarding career. I know one of the deficits, and I think we see this with a lot of neurology programs, is they're so inpatient heavy these days that we don't get that longitudinal benefit as much where we see the change in someone's career and lifestyle and all these things, right? Where you get someone who's, you know, somewhat disabled by their their disease and then you get them to a point where you know they're living an independent life they're productive they're doing what they want to do and you know that can be just that can make all the difference in terms of your career satisfaction oh absolutely i can't tell you how many times when i was a resident where patients would come in with migraine we give them a regimen you hope that their headache gets better but then you know, they, they leave into what we called the ether and you never knew yes. what happened versus when I became a headache fellow, I saw them in clinic after they were admitted on the inpatient side. And I saw how much that impacted their quality of life. And if we got them on an appropriate preventive regimen, then how they were able to continue that impact in a positive way. And then how they started advocating for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That longitudinal care, right? It's it's something that I know a lot of people, especially medical students, they talk about when they're considering internal and family medicine as career options. But I always like to emphasize like neurology and neurology subspecialties have a lot of longitudinal care. And a lot of times you end up being, in some cases, especially for younger patients, maybe their primary physician to an extent. Yes. And you know, like you had said, even with PCPs, majority of headache patients will never get past the PCP. So mm-hmm. why shouldn't primary care doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs at all become more proficient in headache? You know, uh, some I'll give a shout out to my old fellowship program. Jefferson actually does a continuing certification course for APPs, which is advanced practice providers, general neurologists or anyone else, even primary care doctors who don't have expertise in headache, but want some extra knowledge where you can do this continuing certification program and you can develop more of an expertise in headache. Now, does that mean you're a headache specialist? No, 
but it means you have more of an expertise in headache and might make you more comfortable with headache management. Excellent. Always good to have more resources. Um, if people want to to find what you've done, reach out to you, where where should they find you on the internet? Where are you living these days? Uh, great question. So until X burns down, I'm still on X at NotakerMD. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I was a play off my name, Aniket. Sometimes people used to think Anakin. So Anik underscore Skywalker. You can find me nice. on Facebook, Aniket Nataker. A lot of my profiles tend to be private because they're my personal accounts. So my Twitter handle is probably the best one. All right. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you again so much for reaching out, for coming on, talking with us about headache. I think that's going to help a lot of people. I hope so. And I'm glad to have done it. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Thank you again for listening. This episode was edited and produced by Rita Farhan. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review for us on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you might get your podcasts. This really helps with getting the show noticed and spreading the word. You can find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Dr. Kentris, D-R-K-E-N-T-R-I-S, and you can find the official neurotransmitters feed at neuro underscore podcast. Lastly, you can find a lot of our content online and keep in touch with us through our website at theneurotransmitters.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.